Hello, welcome back to A Soldier, A Sailor and A Scientist. This week, Pete and I interview Mike O'Callaghan about space. From space debris to geostatic orbit, this is a great way to understand why space is an important military domain. Don't forget to like and subscribe and head to waveroom.com to read our latest articles. Enjoy the podcast. Mike, what's your role at DSDL? I look after the, the space program, which sits alongside our air systems program and our maritime program and advanced materials and all those other kind of topic areas that, that you know and love. So I kind of look after the strategy for that program, the budget, and ultimately responsible for delivering against the objectives that defense has set us for space. You're the, to- you're the top bod for space in DSTL, is that right? Pretty much, yeah. That's quite. That's quite cool. You're the. You're the. You're the spaceman. Don't tell my boss. Clearly no. yeah, okay, <laughs> not. Now, now, so, but how did you end up at DSTL, and how did you end up in space? I'm a scientist by background, so I did a PhD at the University of Nottingham doing material science, and I joined DSTL helping to work on the advanced materials area, um, uh, and things like that. So I started off in that area for the first uh, couple of years uh, of working at DSTL as a uh, as a scientist in what's now our platform systems area. But after that couple of years, I decided I want to kind of look and look around and see what else was going on across the lab and maybe get involved in different topic areas. So I did a couple of roles moving around DSTL, working for our executive at the time, kind of in technical support type of type of role. I spent a couple of years running our chief technology officers, effectively his outer office, his team looking at things like chartership and running our internal symposium and stuff like that. So lots of roles that gave me a lot of breadth across what the STL does, which is a huge amount, very diverse organization. And then I moved into sort of the program management side, which is where where I wanted to go with my career, really sort of leading research areas. And I started off in the in the C4 ISR areas, command control computers, communication, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. So everything to do with how things are connected together, how we manage information intelligence within defense. So we were looking at lots of different concepts within that within that domain, how we join up different information sources across platforms and things like that. Ran that program for a couple of years, and then we had a big redesign of all the work we were doing. And at that point, I picked up the space program and I've been running it for the last five, five and a half years or so. So it's uh, been a very interesting time. So I'm not a space kind of deep technical person by background, although I do like to remind some of my space technical experts that my uh, my master's was in astrochemistry. So I do have a slight <laughs> space background. And you can ask me about that if you want. But no. <laughs> I, guess, I, I guess that space is really taken off in the last as a as a topic as a domain as whatever you want to call it space is a theme in uk defense language has has really increased in prominence in the last five years certainly before that there was always this sort of a a sort of background tick of of space but it was less about space and more about i don't know secure communication systems or command and control or connectivity distant theaters it was almost down to paradigm issues. It was about calls home. This was the sort of stuff we talked about in space. Space now has become like the number one topic for anyone wanting to talk about anything in the military. It's become this this great thing. You must have seen this, I won't say an explosion, but you must have seen this 
interest in space grow incredibly over the last five years. And I take it that you've had to respond to that in the space team here and and grow equally as quickly, right? Well, I think it's I think we've it's been quite a quite a, a synergistic thing in terms of the space moving up the agenda, as it were, and the growth of our activities at DSTL. I think the two have gone hand in hand. I mean, we've certainly spent a lot of time working with colleagues across the Ministry of Defence to help people understand the impact of space and what it for defence. So when I took the programme over, it was quite small. It certainly was one of those areas that probably seen as a bit of a niche area, a niche activity. And over the last five years, it's it's grown into something that's much more substantial. And I think that's come from partly at least some of the experts we've got here at DSTL who've been able to go out and help folks within the Ministry of Defence understand what space actually means for them, whether it's access to signals from you know GPS, global navigation systems, whether it's satellite communications, as you mentioned, and how they support operations, or the impact of intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance from space on what we do as well, and a variety of other things, and space debris, for instance, moving up the agenda and what it means. So I think we've been growing and informing wider defence, as well as trying to understand where defence has capability gaps that can be filled by space or where there's potential gaps in our future capability that, that space needs to fill. So, yeah, I think we've it's been a parallel thing. I don't think we've responded to defence. I think we've been part of that journey. And there's a tipping point as well in that conversation that you have between DSTL or the, the, the scientists and the operators, right, where mm. the scientists spend the first few years of a programme informing and educating. And then at some point you get the, the operators who, who are informed enough to start asking the right questions that they want to ask about how does this affect me? Can you do this? And you've, you've reached that tipping point right now. So you've got some refined and smart research questions coming in where they're going, right, can you do this? Can you do that? So where are the big research areas for you now in space? So I'd say leading up to the, the, over the last five years, it has been quite focused on ISR from space. But I think a lot of the new programs that came from DSTL, S&T activities we were doing with industry in the integrated review, like the ISTARI program, for instance, came out of research that we were doing with industrial partners, with allies as well. Um, so I think going, going forward now, yes, we're delivering, uh, working with Space Command and DNS on those ISR uh, demonstrator programs, but also increasingly looking at the challenges of space domain awareness, for instance, is probably one of the top uh, priority areas for us going forward. So how can we, what is space domain awareness? Well, it's like situational awareness in, in any other domain. It's understanding what's going on around you. It's understanding what's a, what's a hazard, what's a threat. And the challenges for us are making sure we've got the right technology and capability for domain awareness in different orbits in space. So whether we're flying around in low Earth orbit where things are going overhead very quickly and generally we're working with smaller sets, the washing machine size kind of satellites, all the way through to the future Skynet constellation in geostationary orbit, which is bigger, much more expensive. Again, making sure we know what's going on in those different orbits in space is, is key. And that can involve a range of ground-based sensors or things up in space. And so for us as scientists here at the SGL, it's about understanding what the range of choices and options are. So they will have pros and cons. 
Choices and options over what? Is this over, when, I mean, is this specifically about orbits? Is it about type of capability? Is it about what's deliverable in the future? You talk about choice and capabilities. What do you mean by those? So it's, it's kind of all of the above, really. So it's trying to understand what the priority areas are for, for instance, if we want to improve our understanding of small debris in geostationary orbit, it's 36,000 kilometers away. It's quite far away. And you might be looking at bits of debris flowing around that might be as small as 10 centimeters. So to see something that small, that far away, you're going to need some quite exquisite capability. It's quite a long way for radar. So again, it's looking at, okay, how much would it cost to have optical sensors that can do the survey that we'd need to improve that picture? Just an example, we've been working with the University of Warwick recently through their Center for Space Domain Awareness and with the Japanese space agency JAXA to look at how we can use telescopes that were built for astronomy, how we can use those to actually improve the picture of debris in geostationary orbit. So big telescopes built to look at planets or look at exoplanets, they're great also for looking at debris in, in geo. But why is that important militarily? I mean, I, I get it if you're planning a launch and you're the European Space Agency that monitors this stuff every day. Why is that important militarily that the UK has it? Very, very good question. Obviously, we want to make sure, for instance, let's take Skynet. We need to make sure that Skynet is a service that continues to function, continues to operate. If there's, if there's a piece of debris that hit that platform, it might be that it needs to maneuver out of the way to stop, stop being damaged by, by some means. Now, of course, that might impact on operations if that's a system that's being used. So another solution might have to be found. Obviously, if the Skynet platform was hit by a piece of debris and it damaged it or made it not function anymore, then that's going to have a huge implication. So we need to make sure we understand what's going on to ensure those services, which are really difficult to replace, keep on functioning. In low Earth orbit, it's kind of similar, although these kind of smaller platforms are cheaper generally, and you could rebuild and launch them more quickly. But again, losing an asset because of conjunction with a piece of debris or a defunct satellite or something is going to affect that system and the service it provides to the warfighter. So, so just just on that, I'm. Is this duplication of, because we can't be the, the military is not the only people who's, who are doing like debris monitoring, right? Mm. This is any sort of reading about space at the moment. And, and this has been running for like five, 10 years. There's already agencies that do this. Is, this is not duplication. There's something specific that, that we need or can deliver over and above what's available commercially. Is that right? So again, it's like everything. It's a, it's a, it's synergistic between commercial, civil agencies, the military and, and wider government. So on space domain awareness, for instance, we work closely with the UK Space Agency. In fact, we co-fund research with them where their interest is more almost what you might call space surveillance and tracking. So they're interested in knowing where the satellites are and monitoring them from a licensing and a regulation perspective. And we're more interested in making sure our platforms are protected. So yes, there's lots of com great commercial data out there. It's one of those new growing areas. Our allies and partners provide lots of data as well. But as you kind of said before this, space is quite big, actually. And keeping track of things is a global endeavor. So again, you can imagine if something was, if you launch a satellite to geostationary orbit, it has to kind of get up there. And whilst it's doing that transfer, uh, you need to maintain, if you want to track something, keep custody of it, 
you need sensors around the globe that are linked up to do that. So again, it's quite a big challenge and it's a big space to monitor. So even, for instance, the US have a lot of capability there. There's lots of things that are difficult for them to track and see as well. We've got different geography, different locations around the globe. We can have sensors as well. So it's, it's a big space. It's a, it's a complex environment. And so it requires bringing all these different data sources together from the exquisite through to the sort of off-the-shelf commercial. And I suppose it's in everybody's interest because I'd imagine you could, with so much up there and more going up all the time, mm. it's conceivable we could have some sort of catastrophic chain of events where lots of things could get destroyed and create more debris, which then destroys more stuff. Is that... Yeah, so there are these kind of scenarios, especially in low Earth orbit, in, in polar orbits, and there's a lot of these satellites are going up from SpaceX, for instance, and, and more and more debris in low Earth orbit from some of the incidents over the last few years. Yeah, there are these fears of this Kessler syndrome effect occurring, which could take out a lot of satellites in low Earth orbit and remove, uh, remove those from service. So there are these these fears, and obviously there's moves afoot. In fact, I think today the UK Space Agency just announced a contract for looking at debris removal, monitoring systems. So again, there's certainly in the civil domain moves to look at how we can get debris out of space as well to make it more, you know, safe and sustainable. Now, one of the other things you talked about was for the military from space. And just looking at whether it's Ukraine or Syria or Iraq or, or Libya or Mali, there is a lot of open source intelligence available now that's based on commercial space surveillance that has then gone through analysis and, and is being made publicly available. There seems to be quite a lot of commercially available systems in ISR. The profit margin for all of these companies is in the analysis that happens. They tend to buy it off the big satellite providers. It's the analysis that then turns it around, that then puts it out. That's where the money is. Is there, I mean, there always was, right? For like 20 years, there was a there was a aspiration for the UK to have its own ISR constellation. Is that still on the cards? Is that something that you've been looking at? Yeah, so probably the biggest program we're supporting right now is called ISTARI, which is space program looking at space-based ISR systems between, between now and 2031. The first portion of that is, is very R&D heavy over the next few years. And we've been working with DNS and, and Space Command to support that program. So that includes a number of demonstrator satellites that will be launching over the next few years. And really looking at exactly what you just said, it's looking at a defense ISR constellation and trying to understand what that might look like, what sort of data we might want to, to have, what kind of mix of sensors we might want to have and how that can improve things like getting timely data to warfighters where they need it. Obviously, we've been looking at that alongside the data that's already available to make sure that what we do is complementary to what can already be accessed, whether that's open source commercial services from different providers, or whether that's the really exquisite data that we can already gain access to from our allies and partners as well. So it's trying to look at a, a, a mix of sensors that can complement those, but also meet some of our defense objectives and the things we want to accomplish as well. Um, just as an example, a lot of the commercial providers, not exclusively, but obviously they're optimizing their constellation and their sensors to sell their products. So they want, they want good quality images. 
And so that means quite often they come over at quite regular times of day. Generally, not, not always the case, but in most cases, that's true. And so if you want to take images at different times of day or get over specific theaters, for instance, you might put things into different orbits that commercial company wouldn't necessarily do, or you might need to operate at different levels of security, for instance, again, which might necessitate doing things in a slightly different way. So there's definitely a middle ground on the, on the military side for complementing what's out there. Yes, exploiting commercial and yes, taking, um, working with partners as well. And something that's where we have control over what it's doing as well. And you talk about, as your colleagues have done in, in other episodes, have talked about this interoperability, this, this, this way as a scientist that you can operate with other militaries in the world on their important and new technology capabilities that make a real difference. I take it, is that as true for space, which is, I don't want to, I, don't, I can't say space is not as mature, but it, militarily, the conversations about space perhaps aren't as mature as, as, as other domains have, right? Is, is there still that level of interoperability with, with our partners? So talking sort of from a science technology perspective, but, but for us, interoperability has been a core driver of everything we've been doing, certainly on, on ISR, but in other parts of the space domain as well, space domain awareness as I mentioned. The launch that we've got coming up this year, so Prometheus 2 satellite launching from Cornwall in a few months' time, is a joint project with our international partners. And the launch is provided by our US partners, the National Reconnaissance Office. And we've been working with, with all of our international partners to look from the sort of first principles, what does interoperability look like? So that's been a real driver for a lot of the work that we're doing. Yes, it's really exciting to put satellites up and to put sensors in space and to get them launched. But actually for us, it's all about how we're going to link things together. Um, we don't want to have a solution up there that's just stovepipes to a single platform. So that could be how you get data down to ground stations in different parts of the globe, how you can pass data between different platforms, et cetera. So for us, those in interoperability and standards is key. And we're in a really great place as well in theory in that we've got quite a, a greenfield site in that at the moment we're not operating any ISR capability and so we've got an opportunity to build from first principles that kind of interoperability and from the beginning that's certainly our intention in the programs that we we've got in place and we've got some amazing space companies in the UK so I'm assuming this is not just military to military but actually it's this is a this is a sort of defense ecosystem right so there are industries in the UK that we do this very well, whether it's Surrey Satellites or Airbus or whoever, that we have a bunch of people who are really quite good, but they, they never, they're never like on the, in the market to compete with some of the US giants, right? They, they have always been very disruptive in their approach to space. They've always developed niche capabilities, niche products that, that do something very different from anyone else. Is this an approach that you think the UK from, from looking at the UK strategy, both military and, uh, and across the, the UK space strategy. Is this something the UK is looking at doing, is accentuating that differentiation, the disruptiveness that we always had in our, in our approach to space? If you look at the size and health of the UK space industry report that the UK space agency put out yearly, the UK space sector is driven by the civil sector. So a lot of the funding comes from the European Space Agency, for instance, 
for government-funded programs in the UK, defense is something like 8 or 9% of the overall sector. If you look to the US market, national security is about 60% of the sector. So it's a much, much bigger proportion. So yeah, a lot of our industry has been born more out of the civil side than the defense side. But what that means is there's quite an opportunity again for us to go and look at how things have been done differently there. Yes, we've got some great companies and we're working with most of them in the UK in terms of those, whether it's Surrey Satellites or In Space Missions Limited, who, who are building a couple of the platforms for us as well. There's a whole range of companies that we've, we've been working with and the UK has generally been fairly agile and innovative in kind of some of the solutions that it's been putting together. So I think we've got a different offering. It's not the massive, big, exquisite satellites, certainly not from obviously SATCOM, the UK has got a good heritage in, but from an ISR perspective, it is uh, more on the small satellite side, but that gives us something different offering. And we can look at, again, we talked about, I mentioned being complementary to what's already up there. And those kind of mid-range, mid-size ISR satellites fill a, fill a good middle ground. So, I mean, and it's all very well. And I, I love that the big talk about the industry cooperation and, and the UK niche and, and the, the growing pace and the health of our industry. But in military terms, what sort of difference is a soldier, a sailor, an aviator going to see because of the investment in space we're making, because of the research you're doing, what are they going to see that's different and when are they going to see it? So that's a, I, I might not go too much on the when, but I was definitely, because I don't want to speak for, for Space Command. I'm not here to, to, to talk for them in terms of the kind of taking what we've got now into operational capability. But certainly in terms of the what, I would, uh, I'd like to think that that is improved access to data from space in a more time fashion. A lot of that data historically has been very classified and can take time to gain access to or be difficult to gain access to by operating different types of platforms at different resolutions that are coming over at different times. Again, that the ambition is that data will be able to be provided in a more timely way down to a more operational or tactical kind of user when they need it. I'm trying to steer a bit clear away from the misconception that there's going to be sort of 24 seven, get a picture of yourself anytime. That's not, that's not the reality of what space is. And one of the reasons why that's not very cost effective is those satellites, if you had enough of them up there to do that, spend a huge amount of time over open ocean with nothing to do. So you do need to try and optimize for the things that you need, but certainly more frequent, more timely access to that data and the ability we would hope to be able to more directly task those assets to get the data that they need. Obviously a lot to work out, which is part of the R&D that we're doing as to exactly what those systems will look like, how that might occur through what processes that already exist for the wider ISTAR domain, which we're trying to make sure we are aligned to and sit with it. But absolutely trying to, trying to make sure the access is improved and the timeliness uh, is improved will certainly be up. Yes, that's really interesting to hear. Uh, because yeah, as you're talking about the, the ISTAR-y, which I was hoping we could dive into when we are doing now, I guess. I imagine my, my, my dumb infantry officer's brain is thinking, well, sure, fantastic. Then uh, I've got something I can task there. He's going to tell me all the time what's going on in real time. But that, that's really not possible. No, I mean, certainly in, in low Earth orbit, satellites come over very rapidly. They're not overhead for, for that long. 
if you only had one, for instance, you're not going to be able, it's going to be once every, well, 12 hours or something like that, or maybe even you know, 24 hours or something. So it's not going to be that regular, depending on all bits you put it into and all of that. But obviously the aspiration is to have more satellites than that mm. and to be able to dip into commercial tasking as well. So yeah, one would hope that you're going to be able to have ability to task those assets through the web process that will be, and then gain access to that data in a more rapid fashion. I think one thing I didn't mention as well was probably around shareability. Again, data tasked from a UK asset, we will have control, full control over how that data is shared and who it can be shared with. Again, which uh, you know is certainly important. Yeah, battle group brigade planning. That that sounds genuinely like something that's in the art of the possible here. People who are working on a twelve or eighteen hour planning cycle, indeed, or on the on a carrier strike carrier group who've got to have a look ahead you can I, see I'm, I'm trying hard not to make promises about exactly what this is going to deliver until <laughs> we've done the work to work out what it looks like exactly and, uh, you know i always think back to if you remember remember 24 right yeah uh, and they always seem to have a satellite floating overhead at just the right time and it never seemed to move but so it's not going to be quite like that but I guess that is the difficulty in a balance of investment. And, and you know, I, I wonder if your research talks to this, is, is almost how you divvy up the investment in space for ISR versus the investment in, I don't know, high altitude drones that can, that can, that can provide persistence 24, 48 hours in one place, high res, a variety of different sensors that can be equipped with it. And that balance of investment between the two has got a feature. Is that something that, that DSTL undertakes? Is that part of the space program? Is it, is it a cross-cutting thing? The bottom line from all of that, and absolutely, that is the type of analysis that DSTL supports through our operational research, both in the air domain and, and in the space domain. But it's all about just making sure you understand what your outcome is, what you're actually trying to achieve what your use case is and making sure those are well understood. So if you want, you're absolutely right. If you want persistence over something, then a high altitude drone that can persist over that area of, area of interest for a time is, is going to be really, really useful and, and better maybe than with a single satellite flying overhead. If you want to get data out of an area that's harder to access, for instance, then space might be, might be better, certainly from a, a global perspective. So satellites fly around the globe they can go over multiple locations in in one day so greater access to on a global scale so it really depends balances you've got to be focused on what your outcome is you're trying to achieve against what type of scenario there are some big questions out there doubtless for the science community about space and you've talked about the near-term ones what about further away what are the big research questions that are taxing you about future military operations in space yeah so a lot of this earlier we were talking about things like space domain awareness for instance so talk about understanding what's going on in space and, and that applies across orbits we're operating in now but we also need to think about where we might want to be in the future or what the future might look like presently we're not thinking about medium earth orbit for instance and if you're not familiar with your orbits that's generally where you find things like gps between the low and the things out in geostationary orbit so 
we need to it's quite a difficult region to surveil so we need to think about think about that but also beyond geostationary orbit as well and whilst uh, it's a bit early for us perhaps to think about going to the moon obviously there are a number of things that are starting to go beyond that as well but certainly our our us partners are starting to think about primarily in the civil domain as well but think about things beyond geostationary orbit becomes really really interesting astrodynamics question that is quite you know it's very much more difficult to, to plot what's going on there so again these are some of the much longer term things 2040 or whatever it might be to start thinking about okay how do we start thinking about improving our models that go beyond geostationary orbit as well you'll be familiar with moore's law and the rapid increase in in computing power on the ground now that does translate up to space as well but because in space it's a harsher radiation environment you can't always use the materials that you'd like to use or the materials you can use on the ground in space moore's law in space is a bit behind moore's law on the ground so trying to improve the computing power in space as well and translate some of that development on the ground into space is again they're interesting because in space you're limited by power you're limited by something passing overhead quite infrequently possibly and so you want to maximize the you don't just send reams of data down for instance if you could pre-process it in space and then maybe send a information or even an intelligence product down to someone instead of just a, a picture would be much more useful so again some of those challenges are how do we um, improve what's up in space as well and make it even more useful from a military perspective i guess that must be one of the biggest analytical challenges is is how much you process in space because you're always bounded by your imagination over what to do with data it's more of a i guess a data science question you could have the data all span back to the big headquarters in Witten and and they can then do endless things with data including historical contrast mapping right and and what's changed and you can d decide stuff that way or you could put it in space get your product down but then because you can't go up and tweak the system in space very easily you sort of left with what you buy up there right what you sew up there in terms of launching your capability is sort of up there for 50 years perhaps so there's no chance to change it that's got to be a pretty difficult decision to make do you do support in terms of how how you can make those decisions because without that science to underpin a, a decision of such importance because of the time period it becomes even more difficult to make a accurate military decision, right? So do you support some of that stuff? Yeah, so uh, we've, we've certainly provided some support into, for instance, the Skynet team. But actually, the, it's a slightly different narrative in low Earth orbit because actually those platforms aren't necessarily going to be there as long. They may, maybe you only get three to five years use from a platform in low Earth orbit. It might be longer, but, but certainly if it's a smaller platform, you might replace it more quickly so you can upgrade it more rapidly maybe you'd you'd have a maybe you'd want to have things that don't last too long so that you can upgrade them but also there's a push to have a lot more software defined capability up there as well so again the ability to change code that's in space to update systems etc as well which hasn't always been been the case 
So there's definitely a, a push for things in space to be more responsive and not be there as long and actually can be replaced. Also, there's, there's lots of startup companies out there that are looking at how to do manufacturing in space, how to actually change things when they're already up there to go and service satellites and extend their life or upgrade them in some way. That, that's especially applicable for the most expensive assets like your communication satellites in geostationary orbit. But there, there'll be a cost-benefit case to doing that with smaller and smaller satellites in the future as well. So there's a big belief, certainly in the investment community or with startups, that there's, you know, there's a massive business opportunity there for servicing satellites during their life, for upgrading them, et cetera, for, for doing things in space as well. So if that happens, I think we're not going to certainly be at the bleeding edge of that. But if that business case stacks up and those companies really kick off, then I think there's going to be lots of opportunities. And But again, the military applicability of some of this stuff is quite hard to think about right now, right? So I'm, I'm thinking about that stuff. I'm thinking about re-employment opportunities. <laughs> I'm thinking about career transition partnership. I think that sounds like a place I'd like to get into. Yeah. But but the, the military side of that specifically is just not clear at the moment, is it? Well, I think you've got to think about things like terms like agility and responsiveness. I don't want to use them too flippantly, but the ability to change what a what you're doing on the fly. Maybe the situation changes, but there's a new a new theatre of conflict opens up that maybe we weren't originally set up to provide the best coverage for from a space perspective, or a platform becomes degraded that was providing a critical service. The ability to go into space and have an effect on that platform to perhaps extend its life, uh, for instance, might give an extra five years of capability for a much lower cost, for instance, or enable us to maneuver a satellite into a position that we wouldn't have been able to maneuver it into before. One of the sort of buzzwords going around at the moment is maneuver without regret, because when you put a satellite in space, it only has a certain amount of fuel. You can only move it so many times before it reaches end of life. Um, so if you can increase the number of times you could you can move it around, then perhaps you could change the satellite communications coverage, for instance, uh, more on the fly than you'd otherwise be able to do so. So the military benefits for all of that are really about being able to react more quickly to a changing environment. If you think how long it takes to actually commission and build an operational satellite, even a small one, you are looking at a few years with a real push and for something that's probably not too complicated. So if you want to be really responsive, then maybe you could have things ready to go that, are, you know, uh, that can change things more rapidly. When you consider all of the, the factors that have to go into making decisions about making these things work. There's a very technical domain. I mean, all domains are from fighter jets to, to maritime platforms or whatever and, and tanks, but Space seems to be this kind of especially complex area that people, I think, just talking about it, think, oh, it's too complicated to even begin to understand. So being able to distill down some of these complex ideas into things that to try and explain the impact of a system of space on the warfighter and what it might mean. It's actually language we've not used for a really long time. So we've had to sort of take what we know about doing operational research in other domains and actually adapt that for space to try and better understand what's going on. Think about wargaming, for instance, you know, trying to inject space into wargames and how that 
impacts and features is, is quite challenging. Talked about sort of global access, you could think about an ISR asset. You might look at it in a particular scenario over a particular region in the, on, on the earth, but you always have to remember that that asset has given you lots of other things at the same time that you were never across the globe that you wouldn't pick up from there. So trying to, trying to also help our scientists and engineers in BSTL take their great ideas that are driven from a great engineering mindset and help them explain that as well, I think has also been a, a bit of a journey and something I think we, we're reasonably good at. Um, so yeah, it is... So it is a challenge, but I think we've, we've made a lot of progress and that's been down to leadership of some of the folks I've just mentioned. An exciting challenge for the people who work. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the other Soldier, Sailor and Scientist podcasts at wavelroom.com or with your preferred podcast provider. Why not leave us some feedback? It helps us improve and it helps others find our podcasts. Hopefully we'll see you next time on A Soldier, A Sailor and A Scientist. Bye.